Well, what's up, Gateway? How are we? You guys doing good? You guys doing good? Hey, I'm excited to be here with you all this morning. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ross Sagehorn. I get to work on the GROW team to raise and resource some of our groups, some of the groups and group leaders that John's talking about. I also get the awesome privilege of working with our anchor young adults as we seek to engage and just create community for the 20s and 30s, not only of our church, but also for our city. It's a ton of fun. There's a few of them here, so I'm glad they're here. And speaking of young adults, I actually have a question for us this morning. It goes like this. Do you remember when you turned 21? And I know that might be a stretch for some of us because the answer is no, we don't remember. So you're in church, just nod your head and look straight at me, right? And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but our culture puts a really high premium on the 21st birthday. And if I'm being honest with you, I'm not entirely sure that I know why. So I think as a 21-year-old, we're tempted to think that the world is now wide open in front of us, that there are endless possibilities, that the world is our oyster, that we can do anything with whoever and whatever we want. And the reality is, we're only three years out of high school, so clearly we know everything. We're probably just now starting to do our own laundry for the first time, maybe. And the reality is, we probably still act really immature, but for some, that just means ditching the fake IDs and doing it legally now, you know? So I'm not sure why we elevate the 21st birthday like we do, and I'm not sure what that might have looked like for you or what you're hoping that looks like for you. But for me, my experience was totally unexpected, and it all revolved around what my dad was calling the rite of passage. See, what you need to know about my dad, first and foremost, is I absolutely love the man. The man's my hero. He's taught me so much about faith, and what it looks like to live with integrity and character, and I could go on and on like that. But the second thing you need to know about my dad is he's a really tough, hardworking man. He's actually a large animal veterinarian back in Colorado, so he basically wrestles cows for a living. And when it comes to tests of endurance, especially when they're outside, I don't think I've ever been able to outwork the man. So when he came to me with his plan of this rite of passage, and he was throwing around words like initiation and learning experience, if, and if I'm being honest, in my mind, I started to build up this insane narrative of a 21-year-old Ross being dropped off in the middle of the Colorado backwoods with nothing but a knife and his flint and some wit, and then somehow expected to survive until next morning like Bear Grylls. I honestly thought that was something my dad would want me to do, probably even do with me, and thank goodness... I was wrong. See, it turns out my dad simply wanted to get some guys together, some past coaches and mentors of mine, and simply share an intentional meal together. And see, over the course of that evening, I would later discover that each man present would have the opportunity to speak words of wisdom and encouragement directly to my soul, things like advice on how to live a life that's meaningful, or lessons from stories that we had shared together. And that night I would receive some of the most authentic confirmations and affirmations of my life. It was truly a profound gift that my dad gave me. But what made it most memorable, as you might expect, was what my dad did and said that night. See, after every man present had his opportunity to speak and it was finally my dad's turn, he slowly and without words reached into his pocket and he pulled out a silver dollar, just like this one. In fact, this one. 
He then proceeded to describe the silver dollar. He said, Ross, this is an American Eagle silver dollar. It weighs about an ounce. It's obviously got an eagle on the back. It's, it's shiny. It looks new. It's round. And he went on like that for a while. This is mostly what I remember. And finally, he started to describe the coin's value. He said, Ross, this American Eagle silver dollar is actually 99.9% pure silver, which means it's nearly flawless in its consistency, and it probably is worth way more than a dollar. And at this point, because my dad has been talking for a little while, I'm starting to wonder, okay, dad, where in the world are you going with this? Maybe that's you right now. Am I about to get a lesson on being refined like silver through heat or through pressure? Or am I seriously about to get a lesson on wise investing? Like, this is how you turn one silver dollar into 10 silver dollars. Maybe sneak in a little Dave Ramsey's baby steps or debt snowballs or running like gazelles or whatever, but that's not the direction my dad actually chose to go. See, he said, Ross, this silver dollar represents you. And in that immediate moment, I remember thinking, yeah, because I'm timeless, valuable, and classy. And I wasn't that far off, despite the minor moment of arrogance. He continued, he said, Ross, the silver dollar represents you because you are made in the image of God. And he cares about you very much. He then proceeded to reach into his other pocket and pull out a second silver dollar, and with it, up from underneath the table, a bag of tools that apparently he had snuck into the restaurant with him. And he reaches into the bag of tools and he pulls out a pair of pliers. And in front of the entire restaurant, literally anybody who wants to be watching is watching us at this point. My dad takes the pliers and he begins bending and scratching and denting and ultimately destroying this second silver dollar. I could not believe what I was watching happen in the middle of this restaurant. I remember thinking, Dad, what are you you doing? Like, this is the kind of stuff you expect to see at IHOP at 3 a.m., you know? (laughs) Like when that late night crowd rolls up and they do some strange things, I'm thinking in my head, oh my gosh, are we seriously about to be arrested for destroying valuable U.S. currency in the middle of this restaurant? I'm sitting at my chair, more than a little uncomfortable. The guys around the table are obviously a little uncomfortable. Who knows what the wait staff is thinking as they're watching Tim the Toolman Taylor destroy this coin, right? Like, yep, never seen that one before. But if I'm being honest with you guys, something you need to know about me is as a recovering perfectionist, watching my dad destroy this coin in the middle of a public space totally triggered some deep insecurity within me, some voice in my head that started to say, this is not right. This isn't what you do. This is embarrassing. Dad, please stop. I'm not proud of it, but there was a real part of me that night that didn't really care what my dad had to say so long as it was over soon. My dad, though, he's laser-focused. And after totally destroying this second silver dollar, he holds them both up side by side, and he asks a pair of relatively simple questions. The first one went like this. He said, Ross, which of these silver dollars is now any less silver? Followed by, if you were to melt these silver dollars down into unrecognizable clumps of metal in the hands of a master craftsman, which now has any less potential? And his point became clear. He said, Ross, becoming a man does not now mean that you have to strive to prove yourself to the world that you have what it takes. Not if, but when life beats you up, when life claws at who you are, never forget that God can always, he can always do big things despite our scars. So what kind of man do you want to be? 
The kind who, for the sake of keeping up appearances, strives to prove that he has what it takes, that he is, in fact, good enough, or the one who knows his scars and can find the courage to say, but look what Jesus did anyway. And see, with that profoundly thought-provoking and mostly rhetorical question lingering, the police showed up and they escorted my dad off the premises and, no, kidding, (laughs) that did not happen. I would, however, go on to finish my time in college and I'd get married and my wife and I would eventually move to Austin so that I could begin my career as an engineer. And do you want to know what happened in this season of me being a recently married young professional? I never once strived to prove myself to God ever again. And that's not true. See, one of the single greatest points of struggle in my life, certainly since that night, but probably for my entire life, has been over the perception of my value, which so closely ties to my performance. And this is especially fun to reflect on when I recognize that for most of my life, I've operated from a place of having an enormous ego and virtually no self-esteem. And see, to some degree, some form of the question, am I good enough, makes its way into my thought process nearly every day. And see, the enormous ego says that I have something to prove, that I have to show the world what I have to offer, and that after I do, they should be lining up to invite me to join their teams and their projects, because darn it, I deserve it. But now I've set the bar so high that my virtually non-existent self-esteem shows up and says, wait, you want to do what? You want to try that, Ross? Are you serious? You could never do that. You should just quit now. Why try? And see, with that, you know, the world says that so often as it highlights our scars, we need to show that we have what it takes, that we can prove ourselves. Show up or shut up, right, is what the world says. And we've heard that. But what my dad was trying to tell me on my 21st birthday was, in spite of my scars, those deep fears and insecurities, because of how good Jesus is, I don't have to prove anything. That he can and will meet me right where I'm at and do big things with what I perceive as very little or very broken. And friends, that's a great lesson. That's a great lesson. Maybe you've heard something similar from a parent or a coach or a friend telling you that you have way more to offer the world than you could ever imagine, that you have so much potential that there's only one of you in the world and the world needs it. And God doesn't want us to constantly, constantly be striving to prove ourselves to him or the world because he knows that it's an exhausting, never-ending process and it totally contradicts the message of grace, which by definition is unmerited. The problem is, I'm not sure I always believe that. And maybe you don't either. Then what? See, a guy named Matthew, he followed Jesus around for Jesus' entire earthly ministry, and as he was watching Jesus do these things that he did and say the things that he did, he would eventually go on to write an eyewitness account of everything that Jesus did here on earth. It's where we get the gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14, but really quickly, I just want to give us all some context. See, because at the beginning, or rather the end of chapter 13, we find that Jesus has just been rejected, his ministry has been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. 
And then at the beginning of chapter 14, we find out that John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, has just become the victim of a blackmail murder scheme. So John is dead. And it's in the midst of this news, as crowds are flocking to hear Jesus teach and heal the sick, we find a tired, worn-out Jesus. And I wonder if you've ever felt like that. See, as easy as it would be to pay attention to Jesus in this story, I actually want us to look at the disciples. What are they thinking? What are they feeling as they watch this happen? Because they're real human beings. As easy as it can be for me to sometimes set Bible people up on this pedestal of being super spiritual, these ideal models of character and integrity that I'll never be able to attain or achieve. They probably had halos because that's what I see in all of the pictures, right? The reality is they're real people, just like you and just like me. They got hungry. They got angry. They probably felt scared. They probably got lonely. And when we look at them through the lens of them being real people, we can find that we actually can learn a lot from their stories because they're real people just like us. So we pick things up in Matthew chapter 14, verse 15. It says, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They, the disciples said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Now time out, catch what's happening in this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples because in so many ways it captures three of my primary responses to Jesus and they go like this, exhaustion, rationalization, and justification. Exhaustion, rationalization, and justification. Let me show you, the disciples begin, Jesus, this is a desolate place. We're in the middle of nowhere, Jesus, and by the way, the day is now over. It's getting late, right? This is exhaustion. And we can keep going, the disciples say, and by the way, Jesus, we're feeling a little hungry, which means they're probably feeling a little hungry, and we think the best plan is to send them into the town to go buy some food. After all, we care about them, Jesus. We want you to know that. And the 12 of us, we huddled up, we prayed about it. We think this is the best plan. Let's just send them to go do their thing, right? And that's rationalization. Now, an interesting thing actually happens between rationalization and justification because there's nearly always an inflection point, a turning point, right? The point at which my downward spiral can either take a total nosedive off the cliff or my perspective can start to become righted again. And Jesus does what he's so good at. He invites the disciples to catch a glimpse for what he wants to do. Check it out again in verse 16. He says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. See, it was at this point in the dialogue that Jesus was inviting his disciples to catch a vision for what he had already planned he was going to do through them. And what does that mean? Think about it. Jesus is smart, right? If you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus is smart. And he knew that there was no way over 5,000 people got fed that day with only a handful of bread and some fish. It wasn't gonna happen. So either Jesus is intentionally setting his disciples up for failure, which doesn't match his character found throughout the rest of scripture at all, or... He was inviting them to consider what becomes possible when a little willingness is met with his power because that's when big things happen. See, Jesus knew that and the disciples weren't so sure. And so they spiral, check it out. They say, Jesus, what you're asking for is impossible. We cannot do this, Jesus. There's barely enough for us. 
How's this going to work? And there it is, right? It's justification. And see, we're just like them. We've been there, haven't we? This is maybe how it plays out in my head. See if any of this sounds familiar. Jesus, this was never part of the plan. The cancer, the car accident, the breakup, never part of the plan, Jesus. And by the way, if you were paying attention to me, you'd realize that my tank is empty. I have nothing more to give, Jesus. Are you even paying attention? Are you even there, Jesus? Do you care about me like you say you do? Because Jesus, I am tired. I'm exhausted. I'm sad. I'm lonely. I don't know if I can get out of bed, Jesus. And by the way, this is a bad plan anyway. So I'm not sure I'm even going to do it, Jesus. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Dear God, no. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Yeah, I have too. See, a year and a half ago, I was making really great money as an engineer, I would just become the program manager of this new cutting-edge service that we were offering. All of our clients, we were about to go global. It was a fast pace. It was a cutting-edge service. And people within the company were starting to recognize my name, which felt good. And I had a vision for where I wanted to go. I was literally in the process of interviewing for where I wanted to go. The dream was there, and I was ready to take it. And this is a much longer story for maybe another day, but you can imagine my shock, to put it lightly, when God started asking me, hey, Ross, would you leave those plans and those dreams in order to follow me into this thing called full-time ministry at this place called Gateway Church? Seriously, God? That's never going to work. That was more of a PG version of my response to God, if I'm being honest. And it's fitting, maybe even a little ironic, that he's brought me to this space kind of full circle because his response to the disciples, his response to me then, and what I get to share with you all this morning is this. It's a short statement that carries enormous implications. And if you hear nothing else of what I talk about this morning, please hear this. Check it out in verse 18. And he, Jesus, said, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. All of my exhaustion, all of my rationalization, all of my justification, when I'm in my lowest moment and when you're in your lowest moment, when we think we have nothing worthwhile to bring to the table, even if we wanted to, and we look at our lives and we see dented, scratched, messed up versions of what we thought they could be, and we're frustrated and we're confused and we're looking back at the mangled coin that has become our lives wondering how in the world can Jesus use something as broken and messed up as this? Jesus speaks into our feelings of worthlessness, of helplessness, of confusion, and he simply says, bring it here to me. Bring me exactly what you have and watch what I can do with it. Watch what I can do with it. Let's keep going in verse 19. Then he, Jesus, ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Wow. So you know what I find interesting about this, actually? Is the fact that Matthew mentions the leftovers. See, why go beyond saying and they all ate and were satisfied, right? That's the ending to the story that we expect. So why 
Why mention the leftovers? And see, I mentioned that I'm a perfectionist, so I tend to set the bar really high for both myself and for others. It's not always healthy, and I'm getting better at it, but even mentioning the leftovers in my mind implies that Jesus overshot his headcount. You know? That Jesus made a mistake, and I don't like mistakes. And surely, the God of the universe, who's all-knowing and all-powerful, would have been able to get the exact food order correct, right? That's what we, that's what we think. But again, I, I think I missed this for most of my life. Um, check out verse 20 one more time. How many baskets were collected? Twelve. Before witnessing Jesus' power, how many disciples were feeling a little bit unable, a little bit overwhelmed, maybe a little bit helpless that day? Twelve. And you know what? I think it's a great ending to the story that over 5,000 people got fed, right? Yay, Jesus. That's a great story. It makes him look really good. But I don't think it was the only point. Because there were 12 who got fed more abundantly that day than they ever thought was possible, but not before first handing over what little they had to Jesus. And look, I get it. This all sounds great as we're talking about it. This all sounds great on paper, right? I don't know about you, but my life can sometimes look a little bit more complex than some loaves of bread and some fish sticks, right? Can't yours? What do we do with that? And maybe you're, you're sitting here listening to me talk this morning and, and you're hearing about how Jesus did these big things with very little and accomplished this impossible task and your response is, Ross, that's a great story, but you don't know mine. There is no way Jesus could ever do something like that in my life. I have messed up too many times, more than I can count, and I'm too far gone. Jesus would just be wasting his time. Or maybe you hear all of this and your response is, you know what, I, I hear you, Ross, but I'm not even sure Jesus would want to do something like that in my life. I mean, look at me. I'm nothing special. There's probably someone better qualified, better looking, and better positioned to help. Jesus probably wants him or her on his team. Jesus wants the shiny silver dollar on his team, not me. See, Peter, one of Jesus's other closest followers, Peter thought the same thing. There's actually a story of him in the Bible where after a long night of fishing, which is Peter's job, he's a professional fisherman, Bible says that him and his buddies bring the boats back in and they're totally, totally empty. Nets are empty, Peter and his buddies struck out. And so again, this is a real person. What is he feeling? He's probably exhausted. He's been out on the boat all night. He's probably more than a little tired, right? He's maybe even a little bit irritated at his buddies. Maybe they weren't pulling their weight, right? He's probably a little bit worried about where the next paycheck's gonna come from because this is his livelihood and the nets are empty. Can't take empty nets to a market and expect to buy food, right? See, and it's in the midst of this that we see Jesus show up in the story and basically say to Peter and his crew, hey, I know you've been out there all night, but why don't you try it again, but this time try it this way? And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, something like this actually happened to me at the gym recently. I was running on the treadmill, and a trainer comes up to me in the middle of my run 
And his boss had obviously told him to do this. I have nothing against personal trainers. They great. They, they do great work, anything like that. So I have nothing against personal trainers, but the trainer comes up to me, and in the middle of my run, I'm tired. He says, hey, buddy. He used buddy, which, <laughs> hey, buddy. Looks like you're getting a really great work in, workout in. Have you ever thought about, you know, working with a personal trainer to really enhance your blah, 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 blah? And at this point, I've totally tuned him out because I'm thinking, look, dude, I'm running. I don't need your help. Can't you see what I'm doing? Leave me alone. And so if I'm Peter in this story, I'm thinking, I'm the fisherman, Jesus. You're the teacher. Tell you what, why don't you stick to being rabbi, Jesus, and I'll catch the fish, Okay. All right, hands in, go team, and then they went and did their thing, right? That's, that's me if I'm Peter. But Peter, he's apparently a better guy than I am because he gives Jesus a shot. And they take the boats back out, and some of you know this story. They throw the nets back in, and as they're hauling them up out of the water, they realize the nets are overflowing. They're about to burst. They're about to drag the ship down. They're so full. And see, when Peter realized what Jesus could make possible in his life, his first response is to fall on his knees and shout back at Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Jesus, you don't want me on your team. I'm too far gone. You can't use me. Check out Jesus' response. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And I put that another way in my mind. I imagine Jesus saying, hey, Peter, look, man, I hear you. I think, you know, you have way more to offer than you even realize, but you're probably going to make a ton of mistakes along the way. Peter, look right at me. I haven't given up on you. I want you anyway. Just give me what you have, Peter. Hey, Peter, eyes on me, man. Just give me what you have and watch what I can do with it. And see, Jesus would say the same thing to you wherever you're at this morning, and maybe that's all you needed to hear. Can you trust him with that? Some of us might find ourselves on the other end of the spectrum, though, and we might think, you know what, that's great. I know Jesus can do big things with the little that I have. That's fantastic, Ross, but frankly, I'm not sure I'm even interested, if I'm being honest, because my whole life is automated and on speed dial, and frankly, Jesus, in a world where I have access to Amazon Prime, Sports Center, Grubhub, and Disney Plus, I'm not even sure I believe you can do better than that, Jesus. <laughs> so thanks, but no thanks, I'm good. And maybe this is true for a little while, but then why are studies showing that we're not only working harder and longer than we ever have in the past to have those things. But based on a recent survey of all of our Google searches, which means, yes, they are watching us, we're actually more unhappy, we're more isolated, we're more lonely than we ever have been before in history. And friends, this is especially true right where we live. Did you know that Austin currently ranks in the top 20 loneliest cities in the country? And if you look at our state, Texas as a whole, we have more cities in the top 25 loneliest than any other state in the country. We're good? Maybe. But if we're being honest with ourselves, if we really think about it, we're probably not. At least on some level, right? 
and see streaming hours of Mandalorian so that I can gush at Baby Yoda is great, is really cute, but they don't make the feelings of loneliness and emptiness go away, do they? So yes, the disciples were dealing with bread and fish. But the deep insecurities that they felt, those deep fears and doubts about whether they had anything worthwhile to bring to the table in light of this Jesus, they were real. And they're the same ones that we wrestle with today. And Jesus did for them what he wants to do for us. And that's offer a better way to live. See, this story is Jesus giving us two really big truths And the two truths go like this. Jesus can do big things with the little we think we have to offer. But he won't do anything if we choose to give him nothing. Jesus can do big things with the little we think we have to offer, but he won't do anything if we choose to give him nothing. And so I'll ask two questions similar to the ones my dad asked me when I turned 21 all those years ago. And the first one goes like this. What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of people do we want to be? Followed by what might we need or want to give to Jesus in order to get there? See, a famous missionary named Jim Elliott, he captured so much of what we're talking about this morning when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So if it turned out that you didn't have to prove anything to God or the world or yourself, what might you hand over to Jesus even though you think it might not be that much? And see, we're about to enter a new year. We're literally only a few days away, which is crazy if you think about it. So maybe the question shifts to, what can I give to Jesus this year? And see, for many of us in the room, that's not hypothetical. We don't have to think about what that thing is. We've been thinking about it for the last 15 minutes. It's the financial situation. It's the debt. It's that thing that I have to say to the coworker or my boss, but I'm not sure I'm actually brave enough to say it. It's a thing going on with my parents or my friends or the rest of my family. We're coming into the holidays, right? Maybe it's that thing that you've just been dying to say, but you can't. Maybe it's the behavior that for so long has had you on the ground and you want to finally break out of those chains, but for some reason you can't find the courage to do it. It's the addiction. It's the thing that no matter how hard I try, I can't seem to do it or say it. What if we could give that to Jesus this year? or at least take a baby step. And see, the great news is that none of us are expected to do that alone. It's why here at Gateway, you'll hear us talk about groups. It's why we announce things like community groups and life groups. It's why if you go to any of the connect spots after this service and ask for one of these red flyers, someone would be more than happy to talk to you about what it could look like for you to get plugged into a community of people who are intentionally making the decision to chase after what it means to better follow Jesus and become the people he created us to be. And we're doing it together. See, if that's something you've considered or maybe are considering for the first time, I'd challenge you, don't leave before talking to someone about it. And finally, maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure what you believe about any of this Jesus stuff. 
If that's you, let me be one of the first to say that I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. And maybe for you, the question becomes, am I willing to give Jesus a shot? Am I willing to give him a few more hours in spaces like this and maybe just see if he has something for me? In fact, next week, if you come back, John's gonna give you a free book with evidence that talks about why this Jesus, this God thing is not only worth your time, it's real, but it's also worth exploring. And you don't wanna miss that. See, the Bible says that Jesus is never changing. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means, friends, and this is great news, it means that when we approach him with those banged up, those beat up, those messed up and broken parts of our lives, when we're frustrated and we're confused and we're looking back at the trail we've left and the wake we've caused and we're wondering, how in the world could Jesus ever do something good with this? And we wonder, can he or should he? His response to you and his response to me is the same response that he gave his disciples over 2,000 years ago. See, when I come to Jesus and I say, Jesus, this is all I have. It's all I have, Jesus, and I know it's not much. His response to you, his response to me is with what I imagine to be one of those sly little smiles, you know? He looks back and he says, perfect. Perfect. Bring it here to me. Just give me a shot with it and watch what I can do with it. 